Right, hop in, Will. Okay, let's go. I'm Chris Smith. And I'm Will Tingle. And we're on a mission to find out what happens when you mix neuroscience, national parks, biodiversity and an electric car like this one. All engine running. <laughs> Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions, research, technology, unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. This week, we are recharging in nature by looking at how stepping out into wild country, like one of the UK's 15 national parks, replenishes our well-being batteries. But there's a disconnect for drivers of electric cars like the one we're sitting in. Many of the national parks are very much off-grid, paradoxically putting those doing their bit for the environment with an electric car from benefiting through potential fear of running out of charge in the middle of nowhere. Fortunately, there's now a new initiative to solve the problem by powering up national parks with improved charging infrastructure and also investing in their conservation and boosting biodiversity. BMW and UK national parks have formed a partnership called the Recharge in Nature Project, which aims to support people to get out in nature in a way that's more considerate for the landscape by enhancing the electric car charging network across the UK's 15 national parks. The project also aims to support vital nature restoration, biodiversity and sustainability initiatives so we can help these extraordinary landscapes to thrive for generations to come. This is a big, vital undertaking and to find out more about the importance of this work, we're going to get out there ourselves. Well, spring definitely seems to be here will i would agree yes it very much is and the warmer weather and longer days mean that i like many of us will definitely be looking to escape and spend a lot more time outdoors but one of the reasons that you spend more than the average amount of time outdoors and i've seen your work it's stunning you're a wildlife photographer it's a very loose term wildlife photographer but it's definitely something that i enjoy something that i've done for a very long time and naturally if you want to go outside and take photos of wildlife you have to go to where the wildlife is and with decreasing biodiversity and scant few opportunities it does seem like the best places you want to go are wildlife reserves or national parks what effect does it have on you when you are doing that job though because when i pick up a microphone i completely kind of disappear into the world of what i'm saying and the person I'm saying it to and what they're saying back to me, I'm sort of drawn into their world. So when you pick up your camera and you're in an environment like this, do you find you're sort of drawn through the lens and out into the world of, of the nature you're looking at? Absolutely. I mean, you can see, as cliche as it sounds, the camera being an extension of the self, but more than that, it's quiet. What it is, is it, it's a removal of the everyday. It's the uncomplicated joy of being able to take photos of animals out in the wild. Best photo moment? Best photo moment. I found a nest of dippers uh, on a river just outside of Sheffield last summer and I I'd sort of made a little film about them and they were great to watch to grow up and see them fledge the nest. That was a really special moment. And if there's a best, there must be a worst. Uh, probably dropping one of my old cameras in uh, the Cambridge Canal. That no way. Be a low moment. <laughs> Never saw that again. Um, really, it's gone. It's gone forever. Yep. Oh, no. Getting out of, uh, getting out of a 
a pun to barge straight down the side. You know, this is supposed to be a programme about the de-stressing effects of immersion in nature. Yeah. This was very stressful immersion of a camera, never to be seen again. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. I'm very glad we're out here talking about this. I don't know if I'd be able to talk about <laughs> it in a, in a more commercial area. Do you feel better, though, for, for being out here? I mean, ostensibly, this is a programme about when we get up close and personal with nature and the effect it has on us. Do you find that you're transformed mentally through being out here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel like everyone feels the same way. And it is interesting that I've always known this to be the case, going out into the wild and, and just suddenly being so much more relaxed and feeling better. But it's never really something I've given much thought to. I, I mean, I'd assume there's some sort of process going on in there, but I'm not entirely sure what it is. Well, there's some evidence from psychology studies that nature holds a special place in our hearts and it can be a powerful mental health elixir. Immersion in the great outdoors and in wild country like you find in many national parks and like where we are right now seems to leave participants feeling re-energised and mentally refreshed. But is this just down to digitally detoxing because we're divorcing ourselves from mobile devices and social media for a bit or is there something else going on? What does the science say about the reactions that Will's just given us. Well, David Pearson is a cognitive neuroscientist at Anglia Ruskin University. It can take a number of different forms, generally reduction in stress. People have a more greater sense of positive emotion. So there's also shown that people report lower symptoms in terms of anxiety and depression after spending time in nature. And we also see uh, general improvements in cognitive functioning, things like better sustained attention, better ability to concentrate, better ability to solve complex problems and things like that. Do you actually have to be there to get the benefit or can you stay on the couch and tune into David Attenborough and watch a bit of Blue Planet or something and, and, and say, well, I've immersed myself in that and, and get the same benefit? Well, I mean, there is research which shows that um, looking at videos of nature or even just photographs of nature can have beneficial effects. And there's a growing research looking at virtual reality simulations of nature, also showing that they can have beneficial effects. In terms of what the added benefit of being in a real environment is, one is, you know, complete immersion. And the other is that being in nature is a multi-sensory experience. So if you're just looking at David Attenborough, um, that's predominantly visual and, and auditory. When you're in a real environment, you've got the visual stimulus, but also the, the sounds of nature, birdsong, the wind and so on. Also just the, the, you know, the wind on your skin, the, the, the temperature. So it's a more immersive experience and you have a greater sense of being kind of removed from the stresses of your everyday life. I suppose there's a physical element too, isn't there? Because if you're out and about in wild country, you're going to be more active. And we know that activity also has a positive reinforcing effect on, on mood and everything. Absolutely. I mean, I think with um, you get a lot of... So it's not just the exposure to nature. It's also the, the exercise. It's um, being in a less polluted atmosphere, being in a generally calming environment. So you get a number of different factors, which we know uh, individually can be beneficial, which are combined when you're in somewhere like a national park or an area of outstanding national beauty. What sorts of experiments can we do to probe this? Because it's hard to take a brain scanner up the top of a mountain in the Lake District, for example, and, and get an objective measure of what's going on in someone's brain. So how have people sought to kind of understand this, apart from just asking people vague questions? I think some of the best research, kind of intervention-based studies, so basically you take at least two groups of people, you measure their kind of stress and their cognitive functioning, and then one group you get to do a kind of nature-based activity, and another group you get to do an equivalent 
built environment activity and then you measure their levels of stress and cognitive functioning again and there's a growing number of studies which have done that which have found that when people do take part in a nature-based activity and if you compare them to another group who've done the same kind of activity in a more built environment they show improvements in terms of reduced stress enhanced cognitive functioning and things like that. How long do the benefits last? The benefits do last. It's not just for when you're in nature. So um, studies have shown that if you come back from a walk in nature and you compare that to someone who's had the equivalent length of walk in, say, a built environment, that people are better at concentrating. Say, the studies with students showing that they pay more attention in lectures um, and that, uh, that you have a kind of sustained mood and sustained improvements in things like attention and concentration, which can last um, beyond just a period in which uh, you're, you're in that environment. Is there a physical mechanism if we, based on our understanding of the way the brain is wired up and the measurements we can make practically and objectively on people who take part in these sorts of studies, is there some kind of mechanism we can attribute to why we see this positive effect of being out in nature? As you said earlier, it's quite it's quite difficult to get a detailed look at the functions of the brain due to you know when people are in real environments. Because yeah, we we can't take a scanner up a mountain or put it in a forest. So a lot of that research is focused just on looking at how the brain activity when people are looking at, for example, photographs of natural and built environments. Now, even with that limitation, it's shown that the brain does respond differently when we're just looking at photographs of natural environments versus built environments. Uh, So we see changes in something called a default attentional network in the brain, which is the part of the brain when we're kind of paying more attention to our internal mental thoughts rather than the external world. And we also see differences in the kind of the attentional parts of the brain, which, for example, looking at the location of objects or what um, objects look like, those are the dorsal and the ventral attentional networks. So this kind of ties into a theory that one reason why natural environments are beneficial is because the way in which our attentional systems of the brain engage in natural environments is different to when we're in a built environment. So when we're in a built environment, there are lots of elements in that scene which are kind of dynamically competing for our attention. And when we're in a a natural environment, we're still paying attention to it, but it's a much more kind of relaxed, less kind of dynamically externally driven way. And this is one of the reasons why we, um, we get a reduction in stress and an improvement in cognitive functioning after we're exposed to nature. Is there a difference between an older person who doesn't effectively go digital cold turkey when you divorce them from a mobile phone and access to Facebook and put them in that environment compared to a young person who, as far as I can tell, their phone has become an extension of their body and you put them in an environment where there is no signal. Do one group over the other tend to benefit more or tend to find it a better experience than the other? Most research shows that lots of different demographics benefit, kind of age, gender. These aren't necessarily significant factors. One issue is some research has shown that the amount of time you spent when you were growing up in a natural or built environment can be a mediating factor. So one study uh, showed that the amount of time you'd spent in a natural environment in the first 15 years of your life was a factor in terms of how restorative you found spending time in nature or spending time in built environments. So the, your kind of your childhood experiences in nature could be a, a factor in, in in how restorative you find natural environments, and that is a concern because, um, as you said, with digital technology, kind of younger generations are spending less time in natural environments than previous generations. David Pearson, thanks very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Will Tingle, and Chris Smith. And this week, we're looking at national parks and the value they return to our well-being, 
and the health of the planet. In a moment, the question of how to make sure that as we embrace a future dominated by electric vehicles, we can still get to these venues. But first, we've spoken about the mental health benefits of outdoor spaces such as national parks, but this is only the tip of the iceberg with regards to what green spaces can bring to the table. The big one is biodiversity. Earth's wildlife populations have plunged by an average of 69% in just under 50 years, so any protected area that can maintain species of plants and animals is vital to the biodiversity crisis. But what exactly is biodiversity and why is it seen as such an important thing to conserve? I met up with the Wildlife Trust's Ian Webb to answer these questions. Well, if we could stop birdwatching for long enough, that is. I also cannot promise that this interview won't be interrupted by an impromptu bird watch. <laughs> Fair enough. That's just the nature of the that's beast, a, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. That's why we're here. Well, when we talk about biodiversity, we hear it, it's a buzzword. We hear it a lot in the news, low levels of biodiversity. This needs to improve our biodiversity. Is that just the number of animals that are in a place, or is there more to it than that? Well, obviously the number of animals or, or plants, whatever, in this place is important, but it's also whether those species are expected to be there, whether there could be more species there in a sort of natural system, and it's also the populations of those species as well. You could have lots of different species, but only two or three breeding pairs or whatever, and that's not really a healthy ecosystem. You really need those sort of as natural as possible, where the natural systems are allowed to occur, where populations interact, go up and down, and aren't needing to have support by people in in maintaining them. Does the biodiversity of national parks have a kind of bleed-out effect so that the organisms living there tend to move outwards and perhaps improve the levels of biodiversity in nearby regions? Yes, they do. They can act as a biodiversity source. So they will, if, if the habitats are healthy within those national parks and species increase in number, in good numbers, then they will spill out. The one example, quite obvious, is not necessarily national parks as such, but areas where, or marine protected areas, where there's been long-term protection or certainly severe limitations on the extraction of fish, etc., resources from these areas, and those fish populations, those crustacean populations, crabs and lobsters, the populations increase, individuals increase in size, and then that protection encourages the migration of those species out of the protected area, and then it's therefore available to those people who, who you know, fishers who collect those resources to then be used by people living nearby. So that's an obvious uh, uh, an indication of where we can utilise for our own consumption the value of national parks in the surrounding areas, but as obviously there is the value in enhancing habitats and species and ecosystems for other other natural um, natural capital, if you want to call it that, so like cleaning of air, you know, if you think about on the larger scale, you know, the tipping point of losing twenty percent of the Amazon, you know, the Amazon produces its own rainfall, mm. and when you lose a certain portion of it, it we get less rainfall. Yeah. We get less rainfall in the area, and it will become savanna, and that's sort of a tipping point away from tropical rainforest. You know, national parks, if managed well and are able to support good numbers of species, then those species will spread out. And there's the obvious one, that they are a massive contributor towards the fight against climate change. Oh yeah, good quality, diverse habitats will help sequester and store carbon for decades, centuries, millennia even, in certain habitats. So the more diverse, the more rich habitats there are, the greater sink those habitats act to absorb carbon dioxide. 
more biodiversity there is around. There's more carbon locked up, whether it be in soils, in plant matter itself, in animal matter. So, yeah, it is really key to not just reduce our fossil fuel use, but to make sure there are natural habitats to absorb that carbon. They can do far much more than just absorbing carbon. They provide a nice opportunity to walk in the afternoon sunshine, as we're doing now, but also food production, medicine, flood alleviation, timber products, all these sort of things, all the things that we've actually, we have evolved from biodiverse habitats and have exploited them for millennia. So it is key not to forget that we do need that, even though we feel that we are technologically removed from nature, we still need it completely and utterly in its healthiest, most diverse form. Do you think access to nature increases people's willingness or wantingness to get involved in you know, maintaining biodiversity projects such as that? Definitely. You're not going to want to protect something you don't understand or you don't love. And I think the lockdowns made people go outside more you know, and really appreciate what's surrounding them. You, know, you can watch various wildlife documentaries on the telly, but it's always stuff overseas, and it's only the stuff really that's right on your doorstep that is really key, really important, that you can connect with every day or see it change throughout the seasons that is fundamentally vital for your mental health. Glad we held it together for the whole of that interview. But did you hear the woodpecker going over there? I, I, sure. I didn't, was it? Oh, it was good. Yeah, yeah I was yeah. too focused on the saying the right thing. <laughs> I've got a fan of green woodpecker there. We will leave them to it. That's Ian Webb from the Wildlife Trust. Many national parks lie in breathtakingly beautiful, but often, therefore, very remote places, which are difficult to access by public transport. Unsurprisingly, data from the national parks themselves shows that over 90% of the journeys to them are made by car, and the majority of those are powered by petrol and diesel. Electric vehicles are becoming increasingly commonplace, though. There are now over a million EVs and plug-in hybrids on our roads, as environmentally conscious drivers are seeking to operate more sustainably. But therein lies the problem. Drivers of the very type of vehicle that can help to keep national parks pristine and peaceful are likely to be deterred by anxieties that the parks won't have enough public charging places and they're going to run out of charge somewhere in the middle of nowhere. This is the issue that the Recharge in Nature project, which is a collaboration between carmakers BMW and the national parks and, in their words, aims to fortify the charging infrastructure around some of these remote venues and support vital nature restoration, aims to tackle. But what's it going to take to deal with the range anxiety issue and the paucity of charging points that's a cause of intense frustration at the moment for electric vehicle users? And indeed, how big is the problem? Well, with me are Melanie Shufflebotham, COO and founder of ZapMap, one of the first apps designed to help people to find charging units, and Graham Patton, who's head of EV charging at the company Joju. They work with local authorities and other organisations to install large-scale vehicle charging infrastructure. Melanie, let's come to you first. What does the charging landscape look like across the UK at the moment and how do national parks and, and wilder, more remote areas compare? So I think overall, the EV charging infrastructure is in, being installed at a pretty fast rate. As you said, there's around a million EVs on the road at the moment, two thirds of which are pure electric vehicles, so only only use electricity. And in terms of charging, the great thing about electricity is that it is available everywhere. And by far the biggest rollout of charging infrastructure is actually currently at 
home or at work. I mean, estimates vary, but around 80% of drivers are able to charge at home. So there's at least 500,000 charge points installed on people's driveways and and more at workplaces. So those people who do have off-street parking or access to charging at work, they can charge up overnight, low-powered charging, and generally only use the public charging on longer journeys. But of course, looking at the public charging network, at the moment, there's around 40,000 charge devices across about 20,000 locations across the whole of the UK. This has grown by about 30% since last year. So, you know, really, really good increase. Yes, there needs to be more. And of course, as more and more people go electric, more and more needs to be installed. And I think the other thing I'd say on this is that while it's, you know, it's useful to think about that top line number, really charging comes in many different forms. Um, three key forms. Firstly, en route charging. So that's when you're on the longer journey. And really, your whole objective is to find a available, reliable charge point that you can charge up with as quickly as possible. On the strategic road network, you can add around 100 miles of charge in 15 minutes. And there's around 7,000 of those across 4,000 locations. Secondly, there are destination charges. So this is really anywhere where you might stop for one or two hours. And this is sort of links up to the, to the national parks. It can be found at all sorts of places, car parks, supermarkets, National Trust properties, B&Bs. And then thirdly, on-street charging. So this is really the other end of the scale, very much low-powered charging, where people who don't have off-street parking or who are parking somewhere for a long period may may use these charges overnight instead of off-street parking. And they are actually typically found, not always, but typically found in a converted lamppost. I just want to bring in Graham because interesting what Melanie's saying, making the point about different sort of charging regimes and timings that people allow, Graham. If we think about a national park, I would think if someone drives there, they don't want to waste the time in the national park charging a car. They will probably want to park and go, won't they? Absolutely. I mean, this destination charging segment that, that Melanie mentioned, it is all about exactly that, you know, being able to turn up in your EV, park, charge and be at your leisure to take the two four six hours that you may be wanting to spend in the national park going for a walk seeing the beautiful nature etc whereas often when what we're seeing in the towns cities near the major road networks this push for rapid charging where you know a rapid charger yep you can get on your way up to 80 percent battery charge within 40 45 minutes which is which is ideal to go and grab a coffee but that isn't the type of infrastructure that we would want up in the Cairngorms, for example. Because if you had a car park with some charging points in it and everyone parked and walked, then very quickly it'd be saturated and useless. So it's what, what sort of thing are we looking at? Are we looking at fast charging where we put in really high current, really high power devices? Or are people thinking, well, well we do need an acre's worth of parking where people can park and then walk for four hours while the car charges up? The drivers out there need need both, need access to both, but it really depends on the type of location that you're going. So if we're talking about the, the national parks, in my opinion, you're going to be wanting what we're saying, you know, fast chargers, typically charging a vehicle in four hours, four, six hours, whereas the rapid charger, the owner of the rapid charger, the investor in that rapid charger, they want, you know, 24 people to use that charger every day for an hour. They don't want somebody parking up and blocking it for four hours if they've uh, charged their car in 45 minutes. Melanie, will operators of apps like yours have a role in the future so that 
we avoid the sorts of congestion we got for charges over Christmas. There was a lot of headlines over Christmas where people were saying they were queuing for hours at services and things because all the charging stations were full. At the moment, we aggregate all data from all the different charging operators all in, into one place. And we do have live availability data coming through on the app so that people, when they're driving down the motorway, they can take a look at the app and see, oh, this charging station is busy. I, I, maybe I need to go to a different one. But there is no doubt that there has been um, certainly pinch points. I think T-Bay Services was, was a particular one just up north of the Lake District. Probably people were looking to go, go to the Lake District. So, you know, certainly as time goes on, we, you know, we will be introducing more and more features to allow people to select the, you know, the appropriate charge point and look, look at user comments and, and understand the availability and the queues at different charge points. And Graham, do you see this as a realistic prospect, the electrification of national parks so that they become sustainably accessible to people as we as we move into a, an EV-powered transport regime? Definitely. It, it needs to happen in all car parks, let alone, you know, in the towns and cities where there's high footfall presently. Up in the national parks, people want to drive there, need to drive there, going to be driving there more so in their uh, in their electric vehicles. So therefore, the infrastructure needs to be in those car parks. And, and it's schemes like this Recharging Nature project that are, that are hopefully going to drive it in these parks, but also then other organisations and, uh, and rural locations Graham. will follow suit. Graham Patton and Melanie Shufflebotham, thank you very much. We must leave it there. We've run out of time. But we hope we have nevertheless inspired you to venture forth in your electric vehicle or otherwise to go and see a national park and do justice to your well-being and your mental health. And if you want to find out more about the Recharge in Nature project itself, please visit bmw.co.uk slash national parks. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.